0: All right. Welcome back to why did Peter sink? This is part two of the series called Jumanji. And this one will be following up on the first part. Hopefully you got to listen to that one first and we're going to get started right away here. So we're talking about Nicodemus. We're talking about the fridge in Jumanji and we're talking about Moses. So we got three different eras, uh, three very different stories and we're tying them all together. Okay. The reason that Jesus tells these things to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 is because poor Nick doesn't know that his perceived strength is his weakness. Nicodemus in the gospel is like the fridge in Jumanji. He lives in a position of power and status in the world. The Pharisees cannot enter the kingdom of God They cannot put the jewel in the mountain and yell, Jumanji, because they believe they have no weaknesses. You can't be healed unless you understand your limitations, your weaknesses, your failures. No one with the snake bites in the desert with Moses can be healed until they know that they cannot save themselves. No one in the desert knows how pathetically weak they are unless a snake has bitten them. No one knows that they cannot save themselves unless they reach a level of suffering and pain that has no solution beyond that of a savior, beyond our understanding. And Jesus says as, and just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, so must the son of man be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. The Israelite snakebite can be seen as literal or as a metaphor. Take it however you like, but either way it works. I didn't find my weaknesses, not really, until I felt helpless. I wouldn't even admit weakness until I reached a point where a savior was needed, where my own efforts and outside human help couldn't provide any comfort or healing. And this is a strange contradiction. The one that you see in the desert, you see it again in the conversation with Nicodemus. And yes, even in Jumanji. This realization happens in hospitals and in churches and in recovery meetings around the world every day. Unfortunately, this light doesn't come unless we have pain, unless there's suffering. We are going to have pain either way. You can ride it out to the end, to the last breath, never admitting weakness, and that's a choice that you'd make. The suffering, we can think is to be blamed on god but when we are successful or comfortable we never once think to thank god we only want a god that makes life easy and that's not how it works god wants to draw us toward him signs and clues and breadcrumbs like hansel and gretel they're everywhere once you start to look but for me it took the full snake bite treatment because without it I would not have turned I would not have looked at the bronze serpent on the pole unless I felt desperate for help from the venom I would never have asked for help I would never have had believed that strength was my weakness and I would never have come to the light here's one of the quotes from that John chapter 3 for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come toward the light so that his works might not be exposed but whoever lives the truth comes to the light so that his works may be clearly seen as done in God. So for context, that quote is near the end of the discussion Jesus is having with Nicodemus about being reborn. I've gone into that at some length in other episodes, but there's a side of this discussion that fits here that goes with the strange scene in the desert with the snakes. Creation is painful. Anyone who's tried to paint a picture, write a book or write a song or build a house or anything like that, you know that there are setbacks. You go two steps forward, one step back, or one step forward, two steps back. Uh, you, you can't make new wine without cutting the vines and crushing the grapes. Uh, the same birth is painful. There's no question that birth is an ordeal for both mother and child. Anyone who has even been bedside at a birth knows that this is a fact, that the pain and suffering of childbirth is second to none. And yet, and yet, the moment a baby is born, there is so often the onset of uninhibited love. It's, it's quite a contradiction. You go from extreme pain to extreme joy. I realize there can be more suffering medically and mentally, but when a healthy baby and mother unite, there is a joy that cannot be hidden or recreated. This is the type of joy that nothing else in life can match or even come close to in comparison. Creating a new life takes immense pain to break through to joy. New life cannot come forward without pain. And this is what Jesus is telling Nicodemus. And it's what is happening in the desert with Moses and the snake bites. And of course, Jesus is talking about the spiritual birth, not physical. He says multiple times that you must be born in the spirit. And this seems like some cryptic stuff here, but and like, you need a secret decoder ring. Um, and you don't get to send in box tops for this thing. You have to live it. To be born of the spirit requires getting bitten by the snake sometimes. Likewise, uh, Fridge, when he goes into Jumanji as Mouse Finbar and loses all his physical advantages, that's when he realizes that strength is his weakness. To be helpless is to be bitten by the snakes. While there can be physical pain that we experience, there can be mental or spiritual suffering that matches or even exceeds pain in the muscles, bones and nerves. All who are born physically must be born of the spirit which may come easily for some, but for many can only come through pain and suffering like that of childbirth. And this is why the metaphor of being born and coming to the light makes sense to those of us born into this world. Babies must come to the light and the spiritually dead and blind must come to the light as well. Jesus answered also in John three, he said to Nicodemus, Amen, amen, I say to you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of flesh is flesh, and what is born of spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it wills, and you cannot hear the sound it makes, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. That's John chapter 3, verse 5. So we are body and soul. We're not one or the other. This is an important distinction to realize we're both. We are this merger of both, fully enmeshed together. And although from Descartes onward, we've tried to separate them, they cannot be separated. If we attempt to separate them, then we lose half of our being. We deny our fullness. The body and the soul go together, but each must be born in different ways all of the characters in the movie Jumanji were physically born but they were not spiritually born until they entered this video game which is like a spirit world and they they had there they had to do combat with their strengths slash weaknesses they had to wrestle and suffer with life after losing all that they had believed made them strong they had to look up at their weaknesses to see their flaws raised up before them literally as mouse finbar's character traits are raised up on a virtual billboard or a card for him to see that's one of the scenes where they figure out their character um, attributes before entering the game all four of these high school students were puffed up with pride and hiding behind protective shields and they were all thrusting swords out at the world but those shields and swords led them to detention, which is a kind of prison. They all ended up in the same place and their only redemption came from being rendered helpless in the video game where they recognized their flaws and they started to see true value in every face and every person in the game with them. And ultimately they were believing in something greater than them. And that is what set them free. All of the Israelites who were writhing in the desert, back to the Old Testament here, who were snake-bitten. They were physically born already, but they were not spiritually born until they were bitten and weak. In their confidence, they rejected God using their own words and strength as swords and shields. That's the first part of the story. They didn't need God since they felt strong. And then came the snake bites, the fiery snakes, and then the pain and the suffering, for which no cure or medical treatment could solve, if they could have solved it with some... Band-Aid of some kind they would have done that and they wouldn't have needed help. They wouldn't have needed something from Moses something supernatural Once helpless they had to look up at the image of what bit them this bronze serpent on the pole That was what caused their helplessness. They had to look at the serpent on the pole (laughs) Why a serpent well? Because that was the cause of their weakness And what does the serpent represent in the Bible? Well, sin. A snake or a serpent or a slippery, shiny tempter that bites is always and undeniably the representative symbol of something bad in the Bible, and that goes right along with sin. The bitten and the fallen people, they had to look up at what caused their weakness and acknowledge that fact the thing that caused their weakness was the snake, which is to say sin. And only then in the desert, when they awakened to that truth, were they healed. Then they lived, they were healed, they were reborn in the spirit. And only by looking at the mysterious pole that held up what ailed them, were they restored to health and good order. So why did they have to look up at the serpent? Why does this matter? You know, I, this is one of these strangest stories, like I said, in the Old Testament. This this bronze serpent on a pole and snake-bitten people have to look at it. Well, what are they doing? They had to admit their sins. It's essentially like naming the thing that ails you, naming your vice. That's why Catholics go to confession. People go to psychotherapy or go talk to a therapist, whatever. You're naming the thing. That's why people go to recovery meetings. You name it. People feel uh, guilt if they drink and then they go to a recovery meeting and lie about it. They have, they know they, there's people they trust there and they know why they're there in the first place. Uh, they have to name the thing. So what is this looking at the serpent on the pole? It's, it's essentially naming the thing They these people who were snake bitten had to pass through the fire to be burned of their imperfections. In this case, in this case it's venom in their body. Interestingly, they are said in the, the adjective fiery as it precedes the snakes in that story in the Bible, in the, in numbers. Uh, This is critical to understand about this weird story in the desert. The Hebrews have to stop denying that they have weaknesses, that they have sins in order to be repaired, to deny for the same, for us that we have weaknesses and, and sin is to reject God. It's really that simple. The denial of sin is the rejection of God. In fact, that is the story in the Garden of Eden, where the first people are tempted away from God, persuaded that they will become, quote, like gods only to find out it was a lie and that they can never become God by taking the easy path. Like Adam and Eve, the bitten Hebrews, they cannot elevate themselves to be God without humility. This is one of the odd contradictions of Christian wisdom that you hear over and over. Uh, where you know to go up you must first go down and the quote the last will be first that's you hear that over and over again in the Gospels and even in the Old Testament and then there's the saying he who exalts himself will be humbled so this is not like trying to find Waldo in those drawings where there's Waldo among all these myriad characters and he's hard to identify this message is all over in the Bible the last will be first He who exalts himself will be humbled. You see it in the Old Testament repeatedly. The second son is chosen over the first. The poor, they receive the spirit before the wealthy. The uneducated understand more than the teachers. And the suffering servant is the king in the end. To return to God requires admitting our weaknesses and letting down our guard. Then you will begin to move toward the light. To not admit weakness is to stay hidden behind the wall you have built. The wall that you believe is protecting you, the strong front you put up. It's not made of brick. Like you think you think your front that you put up is brick, it's paper. It's just paper that you imagine is brick. It looks like bricks and it needs to be punched through. The funny thing is that we build up this wall with diplomas and cars and careers and fitness and fashion and we think others admire us for these things but they can see the paper-thin veneer that we're wrapped inside. Others can see it much easier than we can ourselves. We can't see it ourselves because it's hard to admit. We don't have everything all figured out. I think I read this bronze serpent story years ago and considered this to be some kind of magic or voodoo going on. And I felt that it was odd for uh, Judaism and Christianity to say that to say that a Canaanite fertility rite was bad magic, while this bronze serpent story was healing by God. But was this some kind of magic healing by the bronze serpent in this case? Is isn't this different? How is it different? Well, I think it is different, and here's the difference, and it's so critical to understanding the Bible and reading it. They're they're not healed by the statue of the bronze serpent. That's not what heals them. They're healed by their humility and their belief in God. The statue is just an object. It has no power. It's like any other idol. God is the only one with power. But those who believe are healed. Those who get relief do so by belief. When belief enters them, they admit their faults. The door to faith opens up when you surrender. That's the word surrender. The magic rites of the other faiths believe that the statue or the object or the incantation has power. The sacrifice to false gods is making this transaction. The one true God, the Most High God, he doesn't play that game. Moses is calling the bitten people to repent, to turn back to the one God, in order to be healed. And how will it heal them? By their surrender to God, they will be healed. That's the tricky part here. It is by the surrender to God, they will be healed, which people don't want to hear. They don't want to do that. To surrender, especially in American culture, is the opposite. We are in the pull yourself up by your bootstraps, work hard, play hard, do all these things, win, competition. Surrender is the exact opposite of what we are Um, indoctrinated to believe in America but that's the reality the statue is as dumb as the the rock the bronze it's made from but the surrender to God changes people from the inside out and surrender must happen in order for the medicine the Holy Spirit to take in your soul faith is the submission of the will and the intellect to God and if you're only trying to make a deal with God you aren't submitting. You're not surrendering. You are wheeling and dealing. That's not surrendering. So back to the New Testament with Nicodemus and Jesus. This is why Nicodemus doesn't understand what Jesus is saying about being raised up and being reborn. The idea of surrender may bounce around in Nicodemus's mind, but he doesn't do it. Or he doesn't understand it. Or maybe he can't even understand it. And I think that's it. He can't understand what Jesus is saying about surrender to be reborn. And why can't he understand that? Because he doesn't believe he has a weakness. It's pride. Pride is what, uh, it's just like a nearly immovable block. And it takes the unstoppable force of the Holy Spirit to dissolve it. Or if you're lucky, you just get the experience of Saint Paul and get knocked off a horse by a bright light And it's all taken care of in a flash, but that's not how it usually works. Nicodemus did not see the light despite sitting right in front of it. His righteousness is what blinds him. So he cannot be born in the spirit, at least not right then. And we don't, I don't know if he ever was, I know there was a later apocryphal gospel of Nicodemus, but I'm not really sure about what happens outside of the gospels because I stick to the canon. Um, there may be more to that story, and I don't know enough about Nicodemus's post-meeting and uh, his life beyond that. I think there's one or two mentions of him after that scene, but uh, sadly, in this scene in John chapter three, Nicodemus's education and his wealth and his deep knowledge of Scripture will will never produce the pain and suffering that will lead him to admit that he has a weakness. So he's like the fridge in Jumanji his weakness is his strength or his strength is his weakness. You can say it either way. Nicodemus just doesn't know it. that pride is what his, is his problem. That's what's, uh, blocking him. His pride won't allow him to be humble, even though both, um, they may attempt to act humble in public like fridge. He's kind of tries to be humble. That's, you know, even though you're full of pride, you try to show humility and, um, You almost compliment yourself that you're acting humble. Nicodemus kind of does that. That's what the Pharisees do. And that's what Jesus is always scolding them about. So humility usually comes by some, some kind of pain and suffering, some sort of something you can't do yourself. Um, You can't force it. You can try to get it by self-denial, by fasting or foregoing desserts or TV or soda, but it's not the same thing. Denying yourself food and entertainment will help. And it should be done for practice, but it will not likely produce the full effect. Mortification, that is a kind of self-denial or taking away things you like to offer them up to God, that has its purposes and can most certainly draw you closer to God. But self-denial alone to achieve humility is like using a flight simulator versus flying a real jet. The former has no real consequences when the plane crashes and the latter one kills you and perhaps many others. To use another example, using self-denial to achieve humility is like using a virtual reality, like an Oculus to, to quote, walk through New York city on a summer day compared to the feeling uh, of the heat on the sidewalk on your shoes. If you're actually there, or smelling the garbage or the sewer or uh, the restaurants and hearing the traffic noise, Virtual reality is no substitute for reality. So don't let me mislead anyone here. Self-denial is definitely worthwhile. And self-denial is training for the real thing. Uh, If you want to kickstart your prayer life and spiritual awakening, there are tools and events that can ignite the fire or invite it. But you have to be open to the Holy Spirit. That's the real prerequisite. So there's things like Exodus 90 or silent retreats or Ignatian spirituality, I I say go and do these things, as the spiritual fruit is real and powerful, but these things are still not replacements for the, the tests in life, but they prepare you and guide you when the tests show up at your door, and rest assured the tests, or tests, are approaching. Thanks for listening.